Um, well, thanks very much, everyone, for coming. This is, uh, I know it's a busy time of year, so it's nice to see, um, nice to see this new fancy room. And um, yeah, so I, uh, this is a, an overview and then a little more detailed um, uh, thinking around a paper that I'm working, with, uh, working on with um, Matthias Purden, who just finished his MA um, in the, uh, a, a couple months ago. And, but it's a general overview of some of the research I've been doing on the energy, um, energy um, and social friction in Ontario, and then this idea of the, 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 uh, the energy prospector, the green energy prospector. So I have an underlying assumption about energy transitions that I think is important just to lay, lay out for you, that there are competing legitimate rationalities about our energy future that stem from our ideas of uh, community, of the environment, and the economy. So, so we, I have an idea of how the energy future should unfold based on my concerns about climate change, my sensibilities about uh, energy technologies, and so on. And I know that there are many different legitimate competing ideas about this. And so as a fundamental underlying assumption, those require discussion and deliberation. There is, it's not a technical, there are technical solutions, but it's much more than that. Uh, the broad research objectives and approach around the stuff I've been doing recently is uh, to understand the nature of the controversies that arise during the siting and the development of renewable energy projects. So I'm interested in the, in the actual siting uh, of a particular project and, and what happens to the communities, how, how, the, how it affects the community, how does the community respond to it, um, how do they understand and interpret that new technology that's come to their, to their uh, place. And, and, and the approach is very qualitative. Um, I talk to, uh, I interview key informants and I go to different events and I observe things and take detailed notes and I read all the documents and keep track of websites and social media and photos and, and I use a, a, a funny software package called Envivo to make sense of it. It's a, uh, a qualitative analysis uh, database to do that. Um, Stephanie tells me that I'm a political ecologist so I've looked that up and, and I even bought a book on it and was trying to make sense of that too. Um, so there's a lot of factors that influence wind deployment, wind energy deployment, and social acceptability or the social responses are, is one of them. And I don't think you can see this, um, but there's things like, you know, what kind of, what's your structure of your electricity market? What's your grid architecture? What kind of incentive programs are in place? What kind of um, government policy is around renewable energy? And, and then over top of that is the social and political culture which influences things like political and social movements, um, landscape values. And this is all within the, a, a broader rubric of planning and approvals and ownership patterns. And then you have stakeholder support and opposition, which feeds into social acceptability. So the projects, in essence, have to make um, biophysical and technological sense and then economic sense, but they also have to be socially rational as well. And and then that feeds into a local decision on siting and investment. Do you, do you actually invest in this project that leads to deployment outcomes? So in Ontario, we've had significant uptake of renewable energy over the last um, six years, uh, driven by the Green Energy Act. And that uptake has uh, deployed vast amounts of solar and, and wind technologies. And my overlying concern about this is that, uh, you know, I want to see a, a fundamental transition in our, in our energy system to a low carbon one that also makes sense for people. And, and so I, d I don't want the, the transition to be stalled or 
um, to fail because we haven't talked through what it is that we hope to see with our energy future. So I'm, the social acceptability piece is, is the, the concern here. So public engagement, when we go to talk about these technologies, is tricky um, uh, because people are complex. So people are complex and um, the expectations that a community will have over a project is ambiguous, um, diverse, locally contingent, so one place is not going to be the same as the other. Uh, humans are irrational or emotional, that's, that's part of the, that's what makes us uh, uh, amazing. And then it's ever-changing, so it's a, it's a dynamic uh, thing that's unfolding. And in particular, just as a, an outcome of that, community responses can often be negative towards new energy infrastructure. So what, what uh, an environmental studies or science student might think is, uh, is something that should be um, universally accepted, that low carbon energy technologies are something we should all agree is a great idea. Um, in fact, many communities do not support. So this is the actual planning and approvals process for Ontario's Green Energy, energy Act. I'm going to come back and just talk a little bit about that, but I, the main point I want you to take away is that it's very much focused on siting the project. So it's, it's a siting and a planning approvals process. Scope the project, undertake your environmental assessments, um, meet with your key agency folks, do your renewable energy approvals process, submit your application, um, have it reviewed and have, you actually get a six month guarantee in the old process. And then if there was a, a decision that the community didn't like, they could appeal to the Environmental Review Tribunal. And you have your consultation in, in parallel to this. It's a very standard technocratic approach to, to environmental assessment. Right? So let's look at what, what are the possible things that could go wrong and have some uh, input. But it pays very little attention to those kind of social complexities that, that I think are important. This is a figure from Patrick Devine Wright's, uh, uh, some of his work, that highlights what he calls renewable energy technology actors, and I, could, I would call those the proponents. Um, in, in Ontario, the, the government is very much a proponent of green energy and renewable energy and industry proponents. That they're looking at, the, they have expectations of the public. Who is the public? They have an idea of that. They have an expectation of the kinds of engagement they need to undertake, usually a very legalistic uh, form of engagement that they have to comply with the, the legal regulations for engagement, one open house, a second open house, and then a report on the, their comments. Whereas the public has an, a completely different expectation. This is the, the public actors in a community, in their place. Expectations of the project and the process, that they will be fairly and transparently communicated with, that when they ask a question, it will be fairly answered, that, that they may have a, an influence over the outcome, for instance, and how they will be engaged. And so this is a, you know, this, um, this is all the stuff around engagement that leads to a formal decision and an outcome. And this little part in the engagement, this is, this is what the EIA process I just showed you previously, which was, you know, locational strategies, technology design, who is proposed and by what. And so you can see all the different ways that the community interacts with this. They hear about it from their neighbors, public discussion, meetings, petitions, protests, media reports, uh, leaflets, letters to uh, community members and, and and policymakers. And so the, the upshot of this is that the energy proponents, the government and industry, don't pay nearly enough attention to the, this, this challenge with, with uh, consulting with people. So some of the things that influence how a community responds to, um, to a green energy project, or an energy project in particular, place attachment and landscape identity. So uh, this is a, these are very much geography terms that I've learned from my geography colleagues, but 
uh, that people are attached to their place, that their identity, their social identity is very much um, uh, defined by the places that they live. And so those are important emotional and human characteristics. Not, you know, so that's what it is. But the fit of the technology with the local context is important. If, if they have an experience with a particular type of technology, then it can make sense, right? We understand it. We have a, it's not something novel. It's something that we expect. The local capacity and agency of a community, do they have the ability to actually organize and think about this and formulate a, a coherent response and to have the engagement locally, right? So this is, uh, this is something that's important. Uh, many First Nations communities may not necessarily have the capacity to respond to a, uh, a large infrastructure siting decision on their, uh, on their territories, if it's, say, a large hydro project or something. Um, What's the role of local governments in making decisions or in influencing the outcomes on projects? Do, does a municipality, does a, does a local First Nation have influence over the project's outcome? Does the uh, public actually agree with the broader policy objective? And just step back for a second and ask yourself, what is the broader policy objective of the Green Energy and Economy Act in Ontario? What? Well, it was an industrial policy, clearly was formulated after the collapse of the financial markets in 2008. And so it was uh, under the umbrella of a Green Energy Act, but it was an industrial policy to create jobs. The headline in the Toronto Star the day after it was announced was 50,000 green jobs to be created. So it's an industrial policy. Does the public um, fully agree with the broader policy objectives or do they, do they recognize what's, uh, what the intent is? So there may be underlying um, green energy, local renewable objectives as well, but the fundamental policy objective at the time it was created was an industrial policy. The process timing and depth of public engagement is important, right? And this is uh, trust in the proponents and in governments. This is something that I'm going to focus on in the prospectors in a second. The distribution of the project risks and benefits. Who wins, who gets rich, who suffers the consequences if there are any of a project. And so you can think of this in any types of energy, any type of energy projects that we can imagine. So social resistance among rural Ontarians has become uh, to, to wind and, and indeed now uh, more uh, other types of renewable energy, including a small hydro and, and solar, has become commonplace. And so this is just some photos showing and illustrating some of the protests that people have been uh, engaged in. This is from Matthias's um, thesis defense. Some of the consequences of this in local rural communities have been disruption to community, uh, and to landscape, um, and a sense of loss about the changes to their place. And so this is a, you know, here's a, here's a division within the community. Good neighbors put neighbors first. And, and so, you know, if you've signed a lease with a wind turbine pro, uh, with a company, and you're going to make money, $10,000, roughly a turbine, and your neighbor gets nothing, but they're close to it, you know, there's, there's real sense of division in communities. This is someone taking a picture. This was very dis disturbing for this person because of the road through the farm. This is incredibly good soil and, and, and disturbed by the, the changes to that landscape, that place, that's, you know, the soil that's been worked by the family for, for generations, and just to have the road and the, the, you know, what they saw as disregard for the, the topsoil. So uh, something that we wouldn't necessarily think of. Um, a real sense of division within communities and a sense of helplessness. This is the appeal process for an environmental review tribunal where lawyers fight it out and there's the community member sitting quietly having marshaled all of their money, hundreds of thousands of dollars in some case, to, to fight the appeal. And, 
And the onus of the appeals under the Green Energy Act is actually the burden is on the appellant to show harm. So show irreversible harm to the environment um, or human health. Right? So the, the burden has shifted in, in this environmental review tribunal, this environmental appeal, one of the only ones. So uh, only instances of this in the province. So it's, a, it's not a really good chance to have healing, a discussion about this. If you've had a change in how you're, you're, you know, what you sent, your sense of identity and your place, it's a good, you know, let's talk about it. But that's not a very good way. It's like going to court over, a, you know, if, you, if there's been a, a, a separation in a family or some kind of personal division, personal issue that you end up in court rather than having some discussion about it. Um, this was, a, I just want to put this in as a quick note to show that um, renewable energy policy in Ontario has been changed, you know, how, what the, the process that in 2006 we had a, a feed-in tariff that was very successful. It was so successful that the government uh, put it on hiatus after 1,100 megawatts had been contracted and they, because it was too successful, they didn't want to actually, they weren't sure what to do with it. And then there was a new Minister of Energy, George Smitherman, in 2009 that um, was very much um, brought into the, was, got the attention of the um, uh, renewable energy sector, the green energy advocates, um, farmers and First Nations were brought into an alliance and they pitched the idea of the feed-in tariff and the Streamlined Act and it just all came together at the same time of the 2008 financial collapse. He was very much interested in this and the financial collapse. Um, the cabinet said, yeah, we need to make investments. We need to see some money move into a sector so we can have manufacturing in a lot of our, these communities, manufacturing of green technology, um, solar. And so they had as part of the Green Energy Act, of course, was the local manufacturing requirements that were eventually um, kiboshed by the WTO. So we no longer have those, but that was the key, a key element. The feed-in tariff is paid by the ratepayers, so electricity consumers. Um, and there was a streamlined planning and, a, and approval process. The appeal burden shifted to the community's appellants. I mentioned that. Planning decisions, importantly, moved to the provincial level, so it was no longer in municipal control. So when you have a planning dispute between your, you and your neighbor, your, or between community, within a community, your local planners uh, adjudicate and help massage some of that. They live in the community. They know what's going on. This moved up to Toronto bureaucrats making decisions about this so everyone could just be upset about Dalton McGuinty and Kathleen Wynne. And, and, and there was no real opportunity for local um, discussion. All sorts of opposition emerged. Um, green energy was a central feature of the 2011 election. We've had a subtle, subtle change in the last year and a half towards a large renewable procurement process, which has a, uh, dealt with some of these issues, but not all of them. That, but. So I want to focus then on the few, last few minutes on this case study uh, just south of Peterborough near Manvers in Pontypool and walk you through the, the story to tell you about how this particular instance of the green energy prospectors um, created part of this challenge. So there's lots of challenges here, but this is one of them. Now, I use the term green energy prospectors as an analogy to the, the mining prospectors, right? That, that go in and they, they, they stake a claim and then they, they hope that someone else is gonna develop it. Ingo Stuckman formed a company called Zero Emission People in 2008. And Ingo had worked in the energy sector for a number of years in Germany, um, but was a one person in essence. The, Headquarters of Zero Emissions People was in a small house in Brighton, Ontario, and they uh, became Energy Farming Ontario in 2009, and they put a feed-in tariff proposal. You could put a feed-in tariff proposal um, for really very little upfront money, so the barrier to entry for the industry was small. In fall 2009, just after their feed-in tariff, a small mining company, as sort of ironic actually, a penny stock mining company acquired uh, Zero Emissions 
people and renamed the Windworks Power Corporation. So a mining company that was virtually worthless acquired a, a wind company that was virtually worthless. The, and then they're, they're in business. They're, they're putting in feed-in tariff contracts. They put in for this series of contracts, Settler's Landing, Snowy Ridge, Sumac Ridge, Ganaraska, uh, that, that's been built. Have you seen those nine turbines when you drive down the 115? So that one's built now. None of these others yet have to be built seven years later. Whispering Woods, Coley Hill, Clean Breeze, uh, Coley Hill was canceled. Um, Clean Breeze was canceled. Whispering Woods was eventually canceled. So they acquired all of those contracts, those feed-in tariff contracts from, um, from zero emissions people and had a new company that was still headed, headed by Ingo Stuckman. Oh, sorry, they, they got the contracts, but they knew they were applying for them. Now, one of the things, if you don't have any money as a small company, you need to get the environmental approval process underway. Um, how do you do that? when you have, you know, if there's no actual um, equity to do this. And everyone in the community knows that you're undertaking these projects. So in 2009, there was a leaflet drop in August about this, and there was a community town hall meeting. These were filled, filled with people, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people showing up, um, uh, yelling at Ingo Stuckman as he leaves town, um, yelling at the environmental consultants. So very, very uh, uh, enormous animosity. Well, they contracted MKNs to do the planning and the EA, and that was, um, that was undertaken through, um, by, by my estimation, through uh, the, um, the statement of, of accounts of the companies of Windworks contracts, that uh, MKNs was paid, or at least some of their consultants were paid through stock compensation. So the consultants aren't actually paid in cash, they're paid in ownership of the uh, project. Well, you, there's questions then about the, the nature of the work that they're undertaking, at least for me. And um, in 2013, the majority of Windworks was sold to Sprott Asset Management, which is a, 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 used to be a gold mining hedge, uh, fund, but now is diversified, and then it be to uh, Capstone Energy. So the point here is that there's a lot of small, very small energy prospectors putting their stake in the ground with green energy, securing the land leases, securing the, the contracts with the Ontario government, the Ontario Power Authority. Um, and in so doing, not necessarily all of the hard work that's needed to create the space and places and the space for the, the public deliberation, the public dialogue about these projects. They're in a rush to get the stake in the ground. This is my graphic to remind me. There's Ingo Stuckman. And so these, these projects are sold to Capstone. This one is sold to Sumac Ridge. Um, and this one was sold, uh, sold, I guess, in a way to um, NKNs, who renamed it the Stoneboat Community Wind Energy Project. And refashioned this project as a, as a community ownership, something that would be community owned. And this is in the literature, you know, ownership is a key part of this, who wins, who, who benefits. And unfortunately, the, the reputational impact to the wind energy industry was so damaged at this point in the community that when he approached the um, Millbrook um, Council to discuss this project, people met him like this uh, with their signs and basically you know, wouldn't let him even have it, his day to, to speak about it. And so that project was eventually canceled as well. So, so green energy prospecting has exacerbated the pre-existing challenges with social license or social friction around this uh, technology. The, the governance of green energy facilitated in Ontario, indeed encouraged the rush, of, the rush of prospecting for sites. So it's about the siting of the technology rather than the discussion of what's our energy future about, what do we want to do? Some communities might, you know, as an example, just as a tangent here, some communities might decide to have a discussion about energy efficiency rather than a discussion about 
how many turbines do we want to have? Um, startup firms could easily secure fit contracts and landowner leases, and that was the, that's the commodity then that they could sell. And then they could sell those to large, larger firms and investment uh, funds. Energy prospectors are never going to develop um, the projects. This is me just telling myself to stop. Their incentive was to keep the siting and leaseholder arrangements close to their vest. And so I only have a, one more slide. So they, were, um, they weren't going to develop the project. Ingo Stuckman was never going to develop this project. So any conversations that he had with community members were meaningless because he wasn't you know, going to carry it out. Their incentive was to keep their information very close to their chest because there was a competitive advantage to doing so. To reveal where your landowner leases were meant that someone else might be also trying to find that resource. Right? So if you're a mining prospector, you don't want to tell anyone where's, where's the gold hidden. You don't want to say to them, that, oh, I got this chance to get this to, to work. So you want to keep it close to your vest. But the challenge is that everyone in the community knew exactly what was going on. The, the people in, 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 the, in the communities went door to door, knock, knock, knock. Did you, have you signed a lease? And if you, couldn't say, if you didn't say anything, that meant you probably had signed a lease. And so then they went around and they knew where the projects were going. The projects were going. Um, so this kind of relationship is everything that the literature on public engagement says it should not be. It was decide, avoid, declare, defend, avoid, hide, don't say anything. Um, and the reputational impacts to the wind industry from this type of prospecting have been significant and very negative, to say the least. I think one of our biggest exports now in, from Ontario is not green energy technology, but, but uh, um, anxiety over green energy in the form of all sorts of websites and discussion about this. So some modest recommendations then, and I'll wrap up. Communities recognize energy as a system of production, transport, and use. Projects, I think if you're going to propose a project, it needs to solve an energy problem. And that very well could be a climate change problem. Climate change is not discussed in these questions in communities, though. But I think it's a problem. It could be that problem. It could be some other kind of energy problem. People understand this. They're willing to do their part, but they have to understand what it is that the solution is. Um, it requires robust, early, and ongoing dialogue. That's a lot of... That's resources and money and time. I think that communities need to grant consent, not just be consulted. In our First Nations communities, we have meaning the duty to consult. And the shift, I think, over the next five to ten years is likely to be a, a free, prior, and informed consent. Right? To move away from just uh, tokenistic consultations. And so, but, but in the case of energy, infrastructure in Ontario, we've uploaded it to the province and moved away from communities having the ability to even uh, meaningfully engage in that discussion. Uh, things like ownership structure is important, co-management, um, who's in charge of the, the, you know, the, the decisions of the planning and approvals process, uh, impact benefit type agreements that are signed with municipalities and local communities from, with developers, all can work, but they need to be negotiated in a system where the community has some power and influence over the outcome. And the processes need to be transparent. So that's some broader recommendations that from other things, not just on the prospecting piece. And I'll say uh, thank you to uh, interviewees and people I've talked to, uh, to some collaborators and to some funders. Thanks. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, not easy to talk after Stefan. A great speaker. Really enjoyed your presentation. Thank you. <laughs> so so if, if there is any deficiencies, I'll blame it on my sinus infection or my broken finger. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, so, uh, yeah, you probably all know uh, that my uh, team of basically, uh, theme of research is uh, uh, sustainable agriculture. Uh, and this is like a presentation under, this is part of like the research that I'm doing in Ontario to improve the sustainability of the agricultural systems, basically. Uh, this is the project um, supported by Green Farmers of Ontario. And I would like to also acknowledge uh, the research team. Emmy um, Mesigo, my postdoc, uh, David Hooker, and Building Laura Van Ert from University of uh, Guelph. And uh, we have two students working on this project. Uh, Yukai Kotanda is my PhD student, and Jacqueline Clark uh, is a master's student uh, in University of Guelph. Uh, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to start an introduction on basically sustainability of the agricultural system. A brief introduction. Uh, then I will start basically talking as uh, giving you some background information about the interceding cover crops. So what is a cover crop? What's interceding cover crops? And why we need to do uh, research or why are we doing this research on, on the interceding cover crops in uh, corn soybean rotation? Uh, when you're listening to the news now or before, you probably heard a lot of uh, these kind of uh, stories about the lake pollution, all sort of uh, uh, environmental issues that pointed finger towards the agriculture practices. Another story about the nitrate le levels, uh, higher runoff uh, from the agricultural field and causing issue uh, in Canadian lakes. So how these kind of issue is created? Mainly it goes back to the Green Revolution when we started industrial agriculture, high input agriculture basically, uh, factory farming. So using a lot of agrochemicals in our production system, the focus was producing a lot of food to feed the world. And not only the food, but also cheap food. So that's basically the policy of government, especially in the West. Uh, and it's a still, still is part of the food production policy. Albert Einstein, a long time ago told us we can't solve problems by using the same mindset, the same kind of thinking that we created those problems. Uh, so we didn't quite listen to him, so we created those, those problems. It reminded me of my uh, uh, teenager son. Uh, whenever I asking him to do something, uh, so I'm in the middle of telling him, oh, if you do this, and he says, I know it. I know. So he knows, he knows everything. Uh, and we, we're humans, we're, we're like uh, teenagers. <laughs> uh, we're very stubborn, we, we know everything. So we created a problem and we think we know the solution. Uh, so we're gonna resolve it the same way that we created it. So we created that uh, environmental 
pollution problem issues, especially with the water. Uh, and to not mention it like all other agrochemicals, pesticide, glyphosate, uh, neonics in the water, in the soil, and so on. Um, so that's all coming from the, the ideology that we had about the food production and the, the focus and externalizing the costs. So the cost, the, the basically burden that we're putting on the environment, it doesn't account it in, in, in the cost of food production. So uh, we get used to the uh, cheap food, basically, idea. Uh, so we created that, that problem exist and, and our solution to that problem was efficiency-based agriculture. Okay, so what is efficiency-based agriculture, which is a weak ecological modernization. And it's to increase the efficiency. So we thought, okay, we created this problem because we were not efficient. We used too much of this stuff. So now if we, if we use the technology and we tailor, tailor those uh, applications, then problem solved. We're gonna use less chemicals as much as the crop needs. We're gonna use less herbicides, pesticides, or we're gonna use the herbicide pesticides that they, uh, they don't uh, harm as much the environment. So they basically degrade fast in the environment. Or we're gonna replace the pesticides with, with some bugs. So biological agents. Uh, so same thing, instead of applying the pesticide, we bring we, uh, some bugs and, and, and use those ones and problem solve. So to implement that idea, efficiency-based agriculture, then we look at the best management practices, uh, use of uh, precision agriculture technology improved plant cultivars, substitution of the chemical input by biological, environmentally less harmful. And some of these uh, uh, methods or terms may seem familiar to you if you look at the uh, research uh, priorities of OMAFRA or uh, other government agencies. Uh, these are basically research priorities, and it has been in the past few years. This is an example. So using tiny predators to tackle agricultural pests just a few days ago, last week. Uh, so again, the idea of using, uh, it's, it's basically, again, input-based. So you, you, you're creating something, and then you add that to, to your system to, to resolve the, the issue. So what, what's, what's the problem with that? Uh, the research out, outcome of that uh, way of thinking is one size fits all. That's the, the dream, basically, idea of, okay, I will find a solution. It works for you and you and everybody else. So that's what we're looking for. But real, real world is not like that. It really depends on the location, depend on the condition. So recommendation technology, uh, one uh, size fit all, not, doesn't always work. And the transfer 
uh, mode is mainly from top to the bottom. So government put like a policy and say, okay, this is what we need to do. And that basically forced all the way down to the farmers. So farmers, at times they, they have no say. They, they just have to say, okay, there is this pollution problem. Okay, we need to do this. And their regulations there, so they have to. So limitations would be those negative exter externalities uh, still, still there. And uh, spatialized farming system is still there, which is associated with uh, homogeneous landscapes, with low crop and animal biodiversity and standardized agriculture practices. Alternative to that, what's, what's the alternative? Alternative is to rely on the ecosystem, basically, and learn from the ecosystem, uh, which they call it biodiversity-based agriculture, which is a strong uh, ecological modernization. Relies on the agroecological uh, principles that adopt the problem and places. So high biological diversification of farming system. So basically instead of uh, relying on the input all the time. So you create a problem, you again add another input to resolve that problem, again another input and input after input. You basically let the system, because the system works before we start poking into that system and adding things to that. It was there for, for years and it was working. So kind of going back to the balancing that uh, agroecosystem intensification of the ecological interactions between the biophysical system components to promote fertility. So we can up to some point resolve the problem of fertility, productivity, and resilience to the external uh, perturbations, which is climate change or, or extreme weathers and so on is a part of that. A couple of examples, so um, agroforestry. Uh, this is a wheat field uh, that there are like trees and that strips of the grasses there. So different sort of habitat increasing the biodiversity or uh, flower strips uh, at the margins of the field. So Ontario, as, as you know, and I'm going to show in the next slide, is, is switching like majority of the agriculture towards the corn, soybean, sometimes corn, soybean, sometimes corn, soybean, wheat. And they're, they're concerned because that's an intensive production system. We're getting into the high yielding, uh, basically, uh, plant varieties, cultivars. And high yielding means more basically sucking things from the soil and not replacing those. Uh, it will result eventually in the soil, and it's, it's a started with there are reports on that, uh, decreasing soil organic matter and depletion of the nutrients and so on. Uh, 
the, in, the, the reliance on the chemicals is increasing because that high yielding varieties, they need, they basically breed for the high input system. So we actually choose the varieties that they need a lot of like input. So that's, that's one of the challenges in organic agriculture because we, the, the breeding in organic agriculture is very limited. So we have to use the, the basically conventional agriculture uh, cultivars that they, they totally breed for a different system, high input system. Uh, the use efficiencies are not very high. We're still dealing with the like average, like 50% nitrogen use efficiency. What happened to the other 50%? It will end up somewhere. Uh, high risk of failure in the adverse uh, conditions. So if you have basically uh, adverse condition, like such as uh, basically extreme weather conditions, then, then you're going to lose everything, right? So your crops, they're not uh, used to those kind of changes in the conditions there. And increase pests, pressure, reduce resilience. Now, so one of the opportunities that, well, we, because of the wasted investment in this sort of kind of agriculture, there is no way of switching all of a sudden from this to something else, or, or even our food system. It's, it's, it's so set up this way that even thinking about changing that is crazy. So it's, it's really there are like huge obstacles uh, in front of that. So what we can do, we basically have to slowly at least basically make what we have a little bit more sustainable. So kind of a step by step by step. And hopefully things uh, get fixed early enough. Uh, so one is using cover crops. So these kind of corn, soybean, wheat rotation system, they're the system that they, they only get basically agrochemicals as input for the nutrients. They don't get manure or those kind of, they, there's, there's absolutely, is not possible because there's not that much manure. And hauling manure for distance is not possible. So they only rely on what they have. So what you can have there. And they're massive. So huge amount of land and application of something to these land is extremely costly and, and difficult. So if you want to say, oh, let's use manure, let's use like compost, those great, it is not possible at all. It is not for the corn soybean. In, in that basically a scale. But cover crops, still there is potential in cover crops. Now, so here they have pest management benefits, soil quality benefits or soil health benefit, nutrient cycling. And that's all hopefully make our system a little bit more, more sustainable and r less rely on the externalities. Uh, so, there is kind of like a new niche, niche for the uh, cover crops. We're looking at the, our cropping system from 1981 to 2013. It's basically a small grains and winter cellulose. They've been pushed out of the system by corn and soybean. So look at this is corn, soybean, 
the, the soybean, the land under the soybean increasing, huge. Uh, they both kind of pushing these, you see the amount of these uh, winter cereals is getting less and less. So we try to maximize the use of growing season. So there is no chance of basically waiting and after our corn crop, then, then we planting something because our corn will be harvested in November, sometime December. So, and, and, and this, in this time of, time of climate, December, you can't plant anything in December, right? It's too late. Uh, so full season hybrids, so they're not any more short season. They are long season. And we even going earlier planting. So no time really, no, not much window between the two planting to do anything and the, the climate doesn't allow. So one of the options would be, okay, we don't have any time that land is left with nothing that we can put the cover crop there and climate is, is suitable so we can get some yield and we can incorporate it and we get some benefit of that in the, in the soil. So what should we do? Okay, can we plant those together? So kind of like companion crops. So we have our corn and soybean, but, and we spray. So corn, soybean, majority of those GMO, uh, get quite a bit of glyphosate there. There's nothing there. So from the start of the season, the soil is bare between the rows, end of the season. Nothing will grow there. Can we put something between the rows? And that would be basically interceding cover crops. It's not a new idea. So even 1987, there is idea of planting like between the uh, corn rows. But there is a modern interest or newer interest in, in again getting back to that interceding cover crops because things change from 1987, 2016, the, the varieties changed, everything is changed, all the practices, many of the practices changed. So should we try again and see, okay, can we fit in these interceding cover crop into the core, corn soy? And planting time is very, very important. So you're planting two things together. If, if you put those at the same time, they're gonna start competing. So it's very, very tricky. You can't just, it's, it's, not, it's not very simple. You have to minimize the competition between these two. So timing of the planting is, is very, very crucial. Annual uh, ryegrass, red clover are the cover crops that they're familiar to the farmers here. So they accept it, they, they have seen it, they have heard of it, so they're more positive. And they showed that they can produce a good ground cover, which is erosion, soil health, soil quality, everything, all these benefits, uh, but also quite a bit of biomass to the soil. So we're not mining the soil, we're actually adding some organic matter back to the soil. And and you know how important is organic matter to the soil. And we got variable result with the biomass and yield. So sometimes we got increase in the, so reports of increase in the yield after legumes. Uh, sometimes if it was like a dry condition, then there was competition for the water between the cover crop and, 
and the main crop, the, the yield decreased. And there's several experiments that they show there is not much effect on the, on the yield. Majority of the research done down in, in the south, basically in US, in the warmer climate. So when we brought this, this idea, uh, so there was a huge resistance that this doesn't work for Ontario. And we're not going to get into this. So we had a lot of conversation with the grain farmers, uh, with the different colleagues to finally basically convince them that let's try. There are new techniques. It might work. So the establishment of the cover crops, uh, interceding cover crop, is really questionable in Ontario. And farmers, they don't believe on that. Simply. So when I'm talking about interceding cover crop, this is what I mean. So there is two rows of corn. Instead of having like a bare soil here, uh, we have a red clover here, three rows of red clover. And we use the, an interceding technology basically uh, to plant these between the rows. This is the ryegrass. Again, same, same idea, three rows of the ryegrass between the corn rows. So really, the, the research need is to show that which crop species are good, can we establish them well, and what is the effect on the soil health, which kind of seeding techniques we can use, which kind of changes in the crop management we need to do, or cover crop management, and uh, would the herbicide residues will affect the cover crop establishment, and also cost, the most important. Is it really uh, cost effective? Is it um, make any sense to, to add that cover crops to the system? What are the risks? And developing decision and management tools. So with that, the objectives of this project was to look at the, basically, uh, at least these two main cover crops and their mixture and see if we can establish those between the corn, uh, what is basically the rate of establishment, effect on the yield of the corn, how much uh, cover crop biomass we would produce, because that's very important. They are under the shade, right? So they don't grow as much. So we, wanna, we need to know how much biomass we producing. And we test that for the grain corn and silage corn which is two different, different systems. They're very, very different. Silage corn, you harvest it earlier. Uh, and, and then the cover crop get more time to basically grow at the end of the season. Grain corn, harvest really late. Uh, and we're also looking at the next crop, soybean, and see if that cover crop impacted the soybean, and of course, effect on the soil health. So we used the three sites, uh, one here at Peterborough, uh, that's experimental farm here at Trent. Uh, we used uh, one site, Elora, in uh, Guelph, and, and Ridgetown. So three different microclimate, because we wanted to see what is the effect of that micro microclimate, and also soils are different. So we're getting here a lighter texture or medium light. Textures over there and really heavier textures, so with a lot of clay here. Uh, 
much more heat uh, down here, of course. Right? Uh, so experimental design, three sites, and that's a three-year project. Uh, I'm just presenting the first year results, uh, both silage and grain corn, and four treatments. So we had ryegrass, red clover, mix of those, and no cover. Just that that's the normal practice of the growers. <coughs> Completely randomized block design uh, with four replications. This is the technology that we use. So we purchased this equipment uh, using the funding from uh, Grain Farmers of Ontario. So it will go when your corn is like uh, four or five leaf stage. It will go between the rows. They're still not too long. And it will seed intercity. So it drills the seeds between the row, rows of corn. Uh, we did tissue sampling, which is basically both corn sampling and the cover crop sampling. We wanted to see the, the effect. We wanted to see the yield, both the biomass of the cover crop and biomass of the, or the grain, uh, grain yields. We did soil sampling, so characteristic of the soil at the start of the projects, then doing the nitrogen, basically uh, sampling, pre-site dress, and also harvest mineral nitrogen to look at the nitrogen. Because uh, we're using a legume, uh, red clover, and legume can fix nitrogen, so it may affect the nitrogen dynamic in the soil, and looking at the uh, soil health at harvests. So, three different kind of soil sampling. And the soil health parameters that we look was, so when we're talking about the soil health, there is a lot of focus on the soil biology because many of the nutrient cycling in the soil happen through that soil organisms. So we want to have an active, basically, organisms in the soil. So a range of these parameters, soil respiration, uh, we use, uh, we measure some enzymes here and here. Uh, we use, basically, we measure the mineral nitrogen, potentially mineralizable nitrogen, particulate organic matter, total organic carbon, soil respiration, and so on. Uh, that's the soil properties, uh, a, a range of clay, relatively high pH, 7 to 8, uh, total carbon, total nitrogen, and CN ratio between these three sites. So the results, we had relatively great establishment of the cover crops in, in all three sites. So we got good establishment, except for the ridge town that in the middle of the season, it was too dry. We had a good growth of the cover crops, but they just burn because there was not enough moisture for them. We look at the yield. So there was no differences between the treatments. So these are, these are the three different sites. Different colors are different treatments of interceding cover crop. So no significant differences, but the yield between the sites are different. This is the grain, grain yield. So in Trent, we have about like seven, eight uh, tons per hectare. Ridgetown, Elora is 12, 10, 12. Uh, which is very, very typical. So this is actually a very good result because then we show that there is no competition between the interceding cover crop and the main crop. So the focus should be on the soil. 
what's going on in the soil, right? So that was really encouraging results. Then we look at the cover crops basically yield or biomass, and there was no effect of treatments, so all the cover crops relatively okay, but there wasn't a site basically a specific response of the cover crops. So for the Elora, mixed cover crop works better. Ridge Town, Red Clover, Trent, both the mix didn't work well for some reason, but the Red Clover and Anwar Ryegrass, they worked well. Looking at the weeds, no significant differences in the first year. Looking at the residual nitrogen, very low. So five, six, which is, which is really low. And I expected more. So not much nitrogen left at the end of the season, which is good, even in the control. So actually our, our regular practices is also not as harmful that we thought. So this is good, but this is just one year. Uh, we look at all the parameters, basically soil health parameters after one year. The only differences that we found was on the microbial quotient. Microbial quotient is the basically respiration to the microbial biomass, that ratio. And when we have annual ryegrass, we got less uh, microbial quotient. So summary, that's the last slide. That was great that we showed that the cover crops, they can be established and the yield didn't affect it by those interceding cover crops. The success of the cover crops was really site specific. So that shows that was a good idea that we did it in three sites because in the West, some cover crops work really good that they don't uh, uh, necessarily, they doing well in the East. So West and East, they're, they're different. Uh, we showed lower microbial quotient and we also looking some other uh, soil health parameters. We want to show that in the short term. So we want an indicator for the short term. We're still thinking about the implication of that. Why is that? So eventually there is a potential for improving the corn soybean intensive rotations in Ontario by introducing the interceding cover crops. Yeah, with that, thank you very much. Do you have any questions?